Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When ye pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we do have great need of the Holy Spirit's assistance this morning, not only in preaching thy word, but Lord, that he might write these truths upon our hearts. Lord, the words of men will fail us. We need to hear this morning from thy word, and it's only the Holy Spirit of God that can impart those words into our hearts and our minds and our souls. Help us, dear God, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. Open up our minds, help us to understand, encourage us, strengthen us in these perilous times in which we live. God, guide us and direct us. And Lord, I pray as you instructed them that day so many years ago, Lord, we beg you this morning that again you would sit down and instruct us to pray. May you be honored and glorified in all that we say and do. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, when one considers all the troubles facing the church of God today and her sad and deplorable condition, one can come up with many reasons. Yet I believe that I'm not far off when I say I believe one of those is the neglect, or the neglecting of these instructions of the Son of God concerning prayer. These are not the instructions of a weak man who has infirmities, who knows not what to pray for as he ought. These are the instructions of the very Son of God who came forth from the bosom of the Father. And I fear that the neglect of these instructions has much to do with the church's deplorable state in which we live in today. We all say and hopefully believe in the power of prayer and that God has sovereignly ordained that prayer should be a means of fulfilling His will and conforming our hearts and our minds to His perfect will. Yet I fear that the neglecting of these instructions has left the church today in a very weak and deplorable condition. I pray that the Spirit of God would help us this morning see anew the importance and significance of these few words of instruction that our Lord gave us so many years ago. And I hope and pray that we could understand and bathe in the rich blessings of what our Lord instructs us to do in this passage of Scripture. Lord, teach us to pray. wonder how often they had heard Christ pray before they gathered enough courage to ask Him or to teach them to pray. 
Were they in awe when they heard him pray? Or greatly inspired? More than likely, I believe both. Who would not be in awe hearing the Son of God pray to the Father in heaven? Not through infirmities, not with the help of the Holy Spirit, though the Holy Spirit was part of that praying, of course, but to pray without infirmities. To pray in the perfect will of God. Not doubting whether he was praying in the perfect will of God, but knowing assuredly that he was praying in the perfect will of God. That should really send us all to a spirit of awe and humility, but inspired as well. So I believe they were both awed and inspired by what they heard when he prayed. I wonder how they decided which disciple should approach him. You know, when they were talking about who's the greatest amongst them, they had no fear of speaking out boldly and professing who they would, who they thought was the greatest. When James and John sought to uh, place next to Christ in glory on the right and left, they had no fear of asking and approaching Christ about that. Yet when it comes to prayer, I wonder how they came about choosing which disciple should approach him. And why does the Scripture conceal the identity of this one disciple? We know not who it was. We just know that it was one of the disciples. And why did they wait until Christ was praying in a certain place before asking Him? Beloved, I know these seemingly unimportant questions might seem as nothing to many, but I believe they prove the very magnitude and great significance of this divine subject of prayer. And I believe if we listen closely to Scripture and the details which the Holy Spirit gives us in this first verse, I believe we become to understand the realization of what true prayer is and man's utter inability to converse with the God of heaven in prayer and his utter need of divine assistance. Beloved, prayer has always greatly humbled even the greatest of saints. I mean true prayer. What the world and what the church today has done with the expression of prayer greatly saddens my heart. Elihu in the book of Job, when he condemns his three friends, and even Job says, teach us what we shall say unto him, for we cannot order our speech. He didn't say we couldn't pray. He said, for we cannot order our speech. We cannot put into words. We cannot establish any kind of set words by reason of darkness. We know not what to say because of the darkness of our understandings and our hearts. Almost like that of Paul in Romans 8 when he speaks about the Spirit helping our infirmities. We do not know how to order our speech, yet Christ 
when he prayed, he knew exactly how to order his speech. He didn't question whether he was asking in the perfect will of God. He knew he was. So filled, I believe, with the spirit of all, and inspired by his conversing with God, the disciples chose this moment to approach him and to say, Lord, teach us to pray. Beloved, as true believers, it's not that we know not how to pray or that we lack the desire to pray. <coughs> Excuse me. For the desire and longing to pray is not only revealed in our text, teach us to pray. They wanted to pray. They knew it was important to pray. But it is the very breath of a regenerate man, said Calvin. That's how a regenerate man breathes, by praying. It's like taking an air. A true child of God knows because of the Spirit of God and because of the salvation Christ has wrought in his heart. He longs and desires to pray. It's not that we know not how to pray. The problem is what to pray for. Again, I ask you to look at Romans chapter 8 before we proceed. Romans chapter 8 and verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Paul doesn't say we don't know how to pray. but that we know not what we should pray for as we ought. What is proper and in accordance to God's perfect will? That is what our infirmities entail. We know not how to pray in a way that is in according to God's will. We know our desires and we know our wants and our wishes, but a true child of God wants to pray in accordance to God's will. I want to be conformed to that divine will and purpose, yet I find not the words to pray as I ought to pray. To pray, yes. I wish and I longed and desired to pray. When, but when the Lord told the disciple to go look up Paul after his conversion, one of the first things he told him, you'll find him praying. You'll find him praying. Praying is a part of the Christian life, a vital part. The main artery, if I may say so. Yet we still struggle with how we ought to pray. Therefore, he said, the Spirit of God is given to help our infirmities by interceding on our behalf according to the will of God. Now, again, these words of Paul does not imply that the Holy Spirit does all the work 
or prays for us. That's not what he's saying. That's not, he's not saying we'll just sit there and utter something and the Holy Spirit says, okay, I'll take that to the Father and then I'll lay it before him so he accepts it. Just say whatever you want. He's not saying the Holy Spirit of God does all the work or that the Holy Spirit of God prays for us. But every true believer, every true believer, listen to me, every true believer knows what Paul means by these words. They know that it means the Spirit moves and stirs and quickens our hearts and minds to pray as we ought. That's the wonder and glory of praying. It's that it's not just uttering words and hoping the Holy Spirit puts it right before the Father. No, it's the Holy Spirit inspiring us, quickening our hearts to pray as we ought, conforming us even as we pray to the perfect will of God. That is the desire of every true believer, to pray in such a manner. We long to pray like that. We yearn to pray like that. And throughout the church history, we hear of God's men praying hours and days and nights, praying to the Father in heaven, trusting in the intercession of the Holy Spirit to help them pray as they ought to pray. That's what we desire as God's people, that the Spirit of God would stir in our hearts, And I believe Christ's instructions is in keeping with that same biblical truth. He says, when you pray, say. That's what we all long for, do we not? I'm getting ahead of myself, but I believe, again, like I said, neglecting these instructions of our Lord and Savior, I believe, has brought great weakness upon Christians in the church. If we prayed as we ought to pray, I really don't believe that we'd see so many schism and divisions amongst God's people. I don't believe we'd have that. I believe that we'd see a greater success of the gospel if we prayed as Christ instructed us to pray. I'm not doubting the sovereignty of God and that He can do what He wishes, but God has sovereignly chosen for us to lay these petitions before Him in prayer that those things might be accomplished. And if we're not praying, God is not Subject to do what he says. Some might say for such an important and significant subject as prayer, Christ's instructions appear to be vague or somewhat insufficient. It's just a few words. If prayer is so important... And so significant, why does he give us merely a few words of instructions? Well, let's just pause for a minute and consider that so that we might truly reverence these instructions given by the Son of God. For if all the books in the world, John said, could not contain all the things Christ did as he walked amongst men, then surely no measure of books found amongst men could ever contain the divine instructions of the Son of God on prayer. Can you imagine Christ giving us the full instructions on prayer? There is not enough books on earth to fill those. Not enough volumes. If Christ went into every detail about prayer, dearly beloved, I don't believe there'd be enough books to contain everything. But God, in His infinite wisdom and condescending grace to His own, 
would himself, in just a few short words, instruct us on the very essence and substance of all true prayer. And only God could do that. Imagine trying to ask another fellow Christian, instruct me on prayer. Look at the countless volumes we've had since the writing of Scripture. How many volumes, how many books have been written on prayer? Man has consistently sought to find the mystery of praying. And though we read these books, whether it be E.M. Bounds or whether it be Manton or whoever it might be on prayer, they be merely men. Unfortunately, too many echo or parrot merely their labors and know nothing of it themselves, of which I'll not go into this morning. But I'm telling you, nobody can teach us how to pray more than the Holy Spirit of God. And Christ, in these few short words, being God Himself, would give us the very essence and substance of all true prayer. And I hope we can see that this morning, because I hope and pray that it would inspire us to seek to pray more as the Son of God teaches us to pray. I won't get into that either, but most of our prayers are full of selfish desires and wants and wishes. That's not how Christ instructs us to pray. Do you realize this whole instruction on prayer greatly humbles man and greatly honors and glorifies and exalts God? For man, it's give us our daily bread, forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive others, and lead us not into temptation. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. It all exalts God while it humbles man. That's what all true prayer does. That's why I say I believe the church has lost this virtue of how to pray, because if we were truly men and women of prayer, such as the Word of God describes, how humble and meek we should be, not only amongst one another, but more so in the world, and how few schisms, divisions can be found when we're humble before God. A man or a woman that's often in the presence of God in prayer will not be filled with pride and arrogance and selfishness. For that man will also always be reminded of the essence of this prayer, forgive us our sins our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. You see how that helps maintain the spirit of unity amongst God's people. We've neglected these instructions and the church has suffered tremendously because of it. Verse 2, And he said unto them, When ye pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. It's not the mere quoting or citing of these words which Christ emphasizes, but that all true prayer must, must begin with a true and unfeigned longing and desire to see God honored and glorified in all things. We mentioned that last week, and I am not sorry to repeat that again. 
All true prayer must begin with the true and unfeigned longing to desire to see God honored and glorified in all things. Thy name be hallowed. Thy will, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. That is the state of longing and desiring, of humility. And Christ instructs us to seek these things first in all true prayer. Let this be the foundation upon which all other prayer requests and petitions are laid. Everything you pray for, everything we seek in life, whether it's deliverance from afflictions or trials or whatever it might be, sickness, it must be built upon thy name be hallowed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Total submission and subjection to the glory and honor of God first and foremost. Unlike the Pharisee or hypocrite who prays with or solely for himself, all true prayer begins with a humble desire to see God honored and glorified in all things. For though we might have cares, and we do, cast all your cares upon Him, for He careth for you, we have needs. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Christ supplieth all our need. All our need is supplied in Christ. Afflictions, many of the afflictions of the righteous, but God delivereth them out of them all. Though we have persecutions, sore trials, all of which God has promised to comfort and cheer us in. And yes, we are to pray to God concerning these things. Yet when we pray to God concerning these things, let it be reminded, dearly beloved, that it is the first and foremost God's glory, His name, His kingdom, His perfect will, which must lead our prayers and which should be our greatest desire. I'm afflicted sorely, dear God. Thy name be hallowed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I have cares and needs, persecutions. Thy name be hallowed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Let it be buried under this, this submissive spirit to the will of God, to the glory of God. Dearly beloved, that's how our things, that's how our cares and our afflictions and our troubles and our trials are sanctified as in the old hymn. He sanctifies all our crosses. First and foremost, the glory and honor of God. I'm getting ahead of myself. This is not only, and I'll tell you this again later, this is not only a prayer that has to do with our temporal needs, but more so the eternal, goes into the eternity. Everything God speaks about in this instruction and everything we live for is not merely the temporal. There's always, there must always be a sight to the things eternal. Always. Are you listening to me? Must always be the things of eternal in our sights. Not just temporal needs, but eternity. Spoke with a man yesterday. He's on the very verge of death himself. And I said, are you ready? And he said, I hope. And I thought, oh, I hope you have more than just hope. After all the years you walked with Christ, I would hope that you'd say with Paul, I'm ready. 
when that day comes and death begins knocking on our door, I hope and pray that we, because we've prayed, we've learned the instructions of the Son of God concerning prayer, Thy name be hallowed, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, that we can say, I'm ready. What good is everything we live or do for in this world concerning Christ if we come to that very edge of life on the very verge of eternity and it gives us no comfort? What good does all that do? If we have hope of Christ only in this world, we of all men most miserable. But our hope is in eternity. We always have our sights set on eternity. Not on the temporal. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. In heaven. As in earth. There's always a sight towards eternity. There's always a glance. There's always a looking forward to the things of eternity. Which makes the things of these world vain and small. One glimpse of his dear face all sorrow shall erase. The things of this earth, the temporal things, shall be lost in the glory of His vision, of His face. Eternity. Thy kingdom come. Hallowed be Thy name. The first petition is, Thy kingdom come. Beloved, oh, how this second petition should greatly inspire and quicken our hearts and pray. Listen to these words and contemplate these three words for just a moment. Thy kingdom come. Not only in reference to the proclamation of the gospel, because that's how the kingdom of God comes. The kingdom of God is within you, Paul said. Thy kingdom come. That's how the kingdom, that's how the kingdom of God is wrought into the hearts of sinful men by the preaching of the gospel. So we pray thy kingdom come. When we send flowers out, our prayers would be, our flyers out, our prayers should be, thy kingdom come! In power! In glory! Do you realize in what state depraved, sinful, fallen man is in? Have we forgotten the power of darkness which engulfs their soul? And we pray, Father, thy kingdom come with violence! And deliver them from the power of darkness and translate them into the kingdom of thy dear Son. We pray this for all mankind. Not merely the elect. We pray this for all mankind. Let thy kingdom come. But it's all through the advancements of that same kingdom within our own hearts. Because the Lord said Himself, For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Not only the advancement of the gospel, but the kingdom of God with His in us. Oh Lord God, let that kingdom which You wrought in me, let it be advanced. Let me be more pure and more holy in Thy sight. Help me to walk circumspectly. Help me to walk worthy of the calling. Help me to walk worthy of the Lord. Let Thy kingdom in me be advanced, Lord God. Thy kingdom come. not a kingdom of this world, but the kingdom of God. We pray that it comes. That it comes. Make itself manifest. 
work effectually through the preaching of the gospel. This is what our forefathers constantly prayed for whenever they preached the gospel. And whenever they prayed for the salvation of men's souls, let thy kingdom come. It's a kingdom. It's powerful. That many may be delivered from the power of darkness, Paul said in Colossians 1, and be translated into the kingdom of his dear son. Have you ever considered those words? He said the power of darkness. Do you know how powerful darkness of sin is? Do you know? Do we understand? Have we been saved so long that we forgot how we were in fetters and bondage to sin and kept captive under the power of darkness? Nothing short of the power of God could open up our open up our eyes. The old Wesleyan hymn said, "The fetters fell off. <sighs> the fetters fell off." That's what we pray for. Do we pray for that, dearly beloved? I believe the church in this day and age has stopped praying for that. We're looking at the advancement of wickedness in the world. And we see sin everywhere abounding. And we've almost lost hope in the coming of His kingdom. May God grant us grace never to lose hope in that. But to pray consistently for that, Thy kingdom come. Dear God, Thy kingdom come. There are powers to be reckoned with. Dearly beloved, listen to me again. I know we all know these, maybe theoretically only, but I hope so more than that. But I'm telling you, the world is, is in, are captive to Satan and sin and darkness. And the only thing, the only thing that can free them from that is the gospel, which alone is the power of God unto salvation. That's how the kingdom of God is imparted into the hearts of sinners. And so we pray, Thy kingdom come. Even the Lord Himself said it in Matthew 11, The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Do you realize how much violence spiritually takes place when the gospel goes out? And the sinners hear it. Do you realize the violence, the spiritual violence? Look at your own salvation. It wasn't a skip through the park. The struggles with inside of your bosom and your mind, the conviction, the doubts, the confusions. There was there was a violence there. To deliver them from the power of darkness. To be slaves to sin from the depravity of their own hearts. It takes violence. Heavenly, spiritual violence. And so we, as God's church, support that spiritual violence when we pray, Thy kingdom come. Crush the power of Satan, the power of the world, the power of man's kingdoms. Crush man's depravity, sinfulness. Crush man's pridefulness. Let your kingdom come, Father. I believe that if you, would, and I'm sure some of you have, read the history of God's church and the history of the world when great revivals 
when God granted great revivals, such a violence was given by the churches. Not physically, we fight not against flesh and blood, but spiritually. John Knox, Scotland, not Ireland. Last time I said Ireland, <laughs> didn't realize it until after I said it. That's why he said, give me Scotland or give me death. And when they were martyred for their faith, their prayers was, Father, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. As in heaven, so on earth. Confidence and belief and faith. Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified, even as it is with you. The word of God have free course. Oh, wait a minute. I thought the word of God was sovereign. Yes, but the powers and the violence that it faces, Paul says, we need to pray. Listen to me. He says pray. He doesn't say, God will sovereignly do whatever He wants to. We don't have to worry about it. God's in control. We know God's in control. We know God's sovereign. I'm not trying to belittle those virtues and those attributes, but I'm saying Paul said we need to pray that the Word of the Lord have free course and be glorified. That comes through prayer. Do we leave in prayer? Do we believe in prayer? And speaking on the spiritual armor of God's people, at the last part of it, after he says, pray with all supplications for all saints, he says, and end for me, that utterance may be given unto us, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Paul, you needed prayer? Paul, you wrote the book of Romans. You was inspired by the Holy Spirit to pin down Romans. You pinned down Ephesians and Philippians. You were possibly him who was taken up to the third heavens, and yet you asked that they pray that you might be given utterance, that you may open your mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Paul said, yes, that comes only by your prayers. Do you realize how much we don't receive because we do not pray? You have not because you have asked not. James says. And when you ask, you ask amiss. There are so many things that God has sovereignly ordained that comes only by prayer. That's God's sovereign will. It comes only by prayer. God says, you don't pray, I don't give it. This is why we have prayer meetings. This is why we ask you to pray Sunday mornings and Saturday evenings for the services. If we're not praying and asking and beseeching God to meet with us and to bless us and to feed us and to enable the pastor to feed the flock of God from the Word of God, beloved, He's not obligated to feed us every Sunday morning. He's not obligated to show up because we don't ask for it. I believe with Martin Luther that there is a sovereign power that God has ordained for prayer. Mysterious as it may be, I believe God's ordained prayer to bring about great things. And yet, I believe we don't pray as we ought. So the Lord instructs us, this is how to pray. This is what you need to do when you pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. 
Even the Lord, when he looked upon the multitudes in Matthew 9, and we preached on this text a few months ago, turns to the disciples and say, Pray ye therefore the Lord of harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. It's not that the Lord of harvest lacks the power to do so. Christ says, You lack the prayers. He lays the burden of responsibility on their shoulders. Pray. Pray ye therefore the Lord of harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. When you pray, say, thy kingdom come. To crush and overcome the kingdoms of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdoms of this world, thy kingdom power, sovereignty, your right to reign come upon all men. Pray thy kingdom come. To this divine end, Christ would have us pray. Beloved, I believe it's high time for God's people to awaken from their cowardly, selfish, and beggarly prayers. Some Christians who've come to know the doctrines of grace cower behind a knowledge of the sovereignty of God, which is not bold, but cowardly. Yes, God is sovereign. God can do what he wants. But God has ordained prayer as an instrument, and we must pray like men. When we come to the throne of grace, why do you think the Scripture says, come boldly? This cowardly spirit, which most Christians sound like when they pray, is dishonoring to God. You remember Jacob wrestled with the angel all night? The Bible said he had power with God or with the angel. And the angel touched his side and he limped the rest of his life, but it said he had power with the angel. It's time for God's people to rise up and pray boldly in the name of Christ, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come not only in the proclamation of the gospel, that the world succumbs to God's glory. You know, it doesn't matter to me if they profess to be Christians or not. It doesn't matter to me what the theologians, when they talk about the sovereignty of God or election of God, he's not the God of just merely Christians. He's the God of the universe. Are we listening to the Scripture? He's the God of the universe. And God still, even though they do not believe in Him, even though they do reject Him, God of the universe still demands that they submit and subject themselves to God. The church used to proclaim that in spite of the fact, well, they're sinners, they're not going to do it. It doesn't matter. You preach the law to the, to the sinners. It's a schoolmaster. He's still creator. Simply because you don't believe in Him doesn't mean He's not God. Or that you need to subject yourself to Him, submit yourself to His authority. Well, they won't do that. They will one day. The church has been cowardly. We serve a sovereign God who rules and reigns and does what He wants in heaven and upon earth. And yet we portray to the world a weak and feeble God who condones sin, who condones rebellion against God. He's not that God. 
whether they want to believe it or not. Thy kingdom come, God, crush. What do you think in the psalmist? We've read it, we sang it even this morning. What do you think throughout the psalmist, the psalmist speak about God coming and reigning and, and, and sovereignly ruling over all nations? Psalm chapter 2, wonderful. They'll laugh at him, but God says, kiss the son. Why? Lest he become wrathful. They gather together to make counsel. God laughs at them. Look at Proverbs when it says, because you did not draw nigh to me, because you did not call upon me, when your calamities come, I shall laugh at your calamities. God is not some feeble and weak being that has lost control over the world and the universe and subjects himself to sinful man's desire and wishes. He's God. He's God, and the church has forgot to proclaim that and declare that before the world. Therefore, the world laughs at the churches and Christians and God because we've stopped proclaiming who he is. He's God. Your kingdom come. Thy will be done, as in heaven, as in earth. So in earth. And yet also... The kingdom come as a desire for the Christian of that kingdom in his own heart. The kingdom of God, Christ said, is within you. And we pray thy kingdom come, not only for the proclamation of the gospel, not only that God's kingdom in the world come, but that God's kingdom in my own heart be advanced. The kingdom of God, Romans 14 said, is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Lord, grant that thy kingdom make advancements in my own heart and life. Help me to walk worthy of the vocation wherein thou hast called me. Help me to walk worthy of the Lord. Oh, dear God, I pray that you'd advance your kingdom within my own heart. Oh, to be like thee, precious Redeemer. This is my constant longing and prayer. Thy kingdom come in the world and in my own heart. Thy name be hallowed. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done as in heaven, so on earth. Beloved, when these divine petitions excite and quicken our hearts to pray, we are of all men most blessed. And nothing shall give us cause for fear or dismay. Beloved, these divine instructions on prayer go far beyond this present life. Christ would never have us look merely on the temporal things of this world. Why do you think he starts with this first verse 2? With setting our affections on things above in eternity. The temporal things, look, it's almost as though when he gets finished with this, give us day by day our bread, forgive us our sins for, as we also forgive, uh, the, everyone that is dead to us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. It even ends in Matthew where, for thine is the power and the kingdom and the glory forever and ever. Amen. He always sets it on the things of eternity, not merely the temporal. They go far beyond this present life, but also greatly prepare our hearts and minds for the things in heaven. Beloved, all true prayer not only helps, aids, and comforts us in this present life, but by fixing our hearts on the things which are in heaven, all temporal needs or wants shall never cause us any dismay. 
but that's what they'll be, just temporal. Always looking to the eternal. Let me close with Psalm 73. We looked at this a few weeks ago, but let me read it again. This is, this is the fruit of those who follows the instructions of our Lord when praying. Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Lord, help us to be reminded in the instructions when these first words of our Lord's instructions inspire and quicken our hearts to pray constantly like that. And Lord, when it's time, when it's time to depart out of this temporal world, which is but a brief moment, a vapor, James says, Lord, we can say, but God is the strength of my heart, and here it is, and my portion forever. Lord, teach us to pray. When you pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. And the third petition, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. You see how it's, there's a constant reflection of the things of eternity. God, teach us to pray. And may the Holy Spirit of God incite our hearts to pray, to know how to pray, what we ought to pray for as we ought. And may God be honored and glorified. Thy kingdom come. Hallelujah. May his kingdom come, and it will come. One day it will come in all its glory, in all its honor. And oh, what a day that will be. For the Christian, anyway. But not for those lost without Christ. In Revelations, it says, they look upon him who sits on the throne in his kingdom, and they cry, hide us from the face of him that sits upon the throne. We dare not even look in his face. Amen. We sing about looking on his face and all troubles shall he raise. When they look into the face of Christ on the day of judgment, it's so terrifying that they'd rather have rocks fall upon them and bury them. What a contrast. The kingdom of God is coming. May we continue to pray and do so in all his power and glory. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you now, Lord, for your word. We thank you for these divine instructions on prayer. We pray that you would help us to heed them, help us, Lord, to walk in the light of them. Lord, we know not what we ought to pray for as we ought, and we thank you for the help of the Holy Spirit who incites and stirs our hearts to pray as we ought. We thank you, Lord, for these divine instructions. Help us, Lord God, to heed them. Help us to pray for them. Help us, Lord God, to live in the light of them and know the comforts of them. Lord, we love you and we thank you for all things. And may you be glorified in all things. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.